Well, greetings, my name is Ken, and it's good to be together. <clears throat> and of course, the most important thing we can do to begin our time together is to say thank you. Yes, I would just like to thank you all for being here, but also be really thankful for the way that Crossroads Bible Church has been so incredibly supportive in getting Trinity Mission Church, this church plant, off the ground. It is overwhelming the generous support that we have received. Not just in tangible ways with people and resources, but also in the way that I've been able to learn new things about the Bible from a gifted Bible preacher named Rod. So I'm thankful. And with this grateful heart that I come to you now, I would also like to just confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I'm also going to confess that not only am I a sinner, but I am struggling like crazy not to sin right now. I'm not kidding you right now. Right now, I feel overwhelmed with temptation to do something that I know I shouldn't do as a preacher. Are you curious what this might be? Oh, that awkward silence. <laughs> I am struggling. I just thought that was beautiful. Um, sorry, sidebar. I'm struggling right now with the sin that I've been assigned a passage in this sermon series on the life of Paul. And the sin is coming out of this passage that was assigned to me, which is Paul uh, partnering with a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas starts with a B. And these two guys are going to, you're laughing because you know where I'm going. Uh, these two guys are going to plant churches together in the book of Acts. The sin that I am struggling with is I want to bend this passage, Acts chapter 11. I want to twist the scriptures just a little bit to somehow make you believe that God is speaking through this text to say, yes, you must join Trinity Mission Church. <laughs> it's in me. I want to do this so bad. But that would be a sin. Because we Christians, not just preachers, should never, ever, ever allow our own agendas, our own desires to bleed through the text to try to persuade people into things. Never. Oh no. What we must do always is allow the text to speak for itself. No. Scratch that. We must always allow God to speak through the pages of the Bible directly to us. Not just me, not just you, but every single one of us. And that is good news. It is good news that God wants to speak to all of us directly through the Bible. This is why we say the Bible is inspired. It's good news for those of you who've been reading this book cover to cover for years and years and years. Because there are those moments still you crack it open and then you go whammo. Something new. God teaches us new things. Or how about those of us who are in this room right now who are professing Christians, we love Jesus, we know the Bible is important, but gosh darn it, how do we read this book? There's weird names like Habakkuk, cuck, cuck, cuck. Where do we start? How do we stay consistent? How do we pray? How do we live into Christian community? Good news. God teaches us through the pages of Scripture how to do all those things. And that's not all. I recognize in a room this size, there might be a few of us, or maybe more than a few, that don't believe in Jesus. Uh, you may not be a Christian and you're here, and you don't think you can trust the words of the Bible. If that's you, know this, I'm glad you're here, but I also want to share with you this good news that God wants to speak to you as well. Because God speaks directly through the Bible. And so our task today is to work through this passage of Scripture in the life of Paul, Acts chapter 11. And we're going to be as simple as we possibly can be. With a lot of clarity, we want to do our best to learn at least three things. Three things that God wants to teach all of us right here in this room on how to live for God. Whether we're a janitor, a business owner, a student, a kid, doesn't matter. God wants to teach every single one of us these things. Now before we turn to that passage of Scripture, let me just give you a little background to our passage. Let me set the table, if you will. Uh, let's get nerdy. <laughs> I have a good friend. Maybe he's your friend too. His name is Dale. 
He's not able to be here with us today. And Dale, on many occasions, has reminded me never to shy away from getting nerdy when I preach. So Dale, this is for you, buddy. Okay. Never is easy. So, uh, let me situate two things with the background. The first thing is Paul and Barnabas. What they're up to leading into Acts chapter 11. Here we go. Paul first. Paul, as Rod told us last week, is in the basement of his parents' home in Tarsus. He's there in the basement. He had this profound conversion moment by the good news of Jesus Christ. Actually, Jesus shook him on the road to Damascus and said, Believe in me! And by the way, you're called to preach the gospel to the Greeks, non-Jewish people. And Paul believed in this call so much that almost immediately he's going for it. He's taking swings to try to hit home runs and he's striking out. He almost gets killed a couple times. He's not doing a great job at living into this calling because he still needs to learn more about this calling. So the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the epicenter of Christianity at this time, look at Paul and say, hey buddy, why don't you go back home and live in your parents' basement? Don't play video games, no halo. Just focus on reading the scriptures and seeing how Jesus is the promise of all, fulfillment of all God's promises. So Paul's in the basement. Barnabas. Do you notice that his name starts with a B? Do you notice that my partner's name starts with a B, Brad? Okay, Barnabas is a good guy. That's what the text says. He's a good guy. And Barnabas is a good guy who gives of himself to build up the body of Christ with the gifts of being an encourager, someone who likes to comfort people when they're going through hard times, someone who wants to give them a hug, but also teach them the scriptures, maybe give them a little kick to the pants once in a while to remind them of what they're supposed to be doing as Christians. That's how he's a good guy, but he's also a good guy because he was a wealthy guy that gave of all his money to the early church. Yeah, he sold some property. If you owned property back in them days, that meant you're, you're wealthy. And he sold his property, gave it to the church to serve the poor. So he's a good guy. But Paul and Barnabas aren't just these two guys who are kind of hanging out right now, waiting for Acts 11 to take place. They're two guys that in every meaning of the word, they are bicultural. They're bicultural fellows. This is what I mean. Both of these guys are Jewish, Jewish. They can live in the church in Jerusalem and speak Hebrew, read things in Aramaic. They know the inner workings of the temple, how worship is done, how to properly teach things from the Pentateuch. These guys are Jewish, Jewish. At the same time, these guys are from Greek cities. Paul from Tarsus, Barnabas from Cyprus. Two places that are overwhelmingly Greek, means they speak Greek, they have a Greek worldview, they do things that are entertaining, that are Greek culture, they have an economic way of doing life that reflects Greek. So these guys can live in Jerusalem, and they can live just as comfortably in Athens if they had to. They're bicultural. This is very important before we enter our text. Last thing, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of the Bible that explains the history of God's plan. The book of Acts is a book of the Bible that explains the history of God's plan to save the world. There's a thesis statement right there in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's this moment when Jesus looks at his disciples as he looks at all of us in this room and Jesus says this, go and be my witnesses. First, here in Jerusalem, this place where I died, this place where it's all kind of making sense of who I am as the Messiah, promised for centuries, here I am. Start the church there. But then Jesus says, to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. All the way to Rome, Spain, you name it. Take the gospel everywhere. That's the book of Acts. And at this very moment where Paul and Barnabas, one sitting in a basement, one sitting in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is where everything is happening. <clears throat> it is the epicenter of Christianity. All things Christian are pretty much happening there or around there. Christianity is very much a Jewish faith. 
Okay, leave that right there. Remember, our task today is simple. We're going to do our best to learn at least three things that God wants to teach us through our passage. But now we know something about those three things. Here's what we know. Whatever God wants to teach us must help us participate in God's plan. God doesn't want to teach us things from the Bible on how to wear khaki pants and collared shirts and be nice people. Oh, no, no. God wants to teach us how to join his mission of saving this world to redeeming it back to himself. So anything that we learn from this moment forward must, I say must, include participating in God's plan. With that being said, would you please stand as you're able? Here we go. Acts 11, we're going to start in verse 19. And we're going to pick apart the first few verses there. Acts eleven nineteen. 19. <clears throat> Here we go. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Check this out. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Friends, you may be seated. God's plan to save the world is on its way. Right there in that passage I read to you, God's plan to save the world is now moving away from Jerusalem. Let me tell you what I mean. So there's this reference to those who were scattered by persecution. That's a reference going back in the book of Acts to this time when the Christians were in this sweet place of calling each other brother and sister and reading the scriptures and sharing these meals together. It was a wonderful time. They were growing exponentially right there in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus died on the cross for them. And then all of a sudden, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had to put a stop to this whole Christian thing. They hired the big guns, a guy named Paul. Uh, they brought him in before his conversion, and they wanted him to stop this thing in its tracks. So the first thing that Paul and his team of elite soldiers is they go in and they find this guy named Stephen, mentioned in our passage, who was a powerful preacher. When Stephen preached, people came to faith. They had Stephen publicly executed so that way they could show, you follow Jesus, this is what happens. But Paul and the team didn't stop there. The persecution continues where they grabbed both women and men and dragged them into prison. They confiscated their properties. They uh, killed probably other Christians as well. And because of this severe persecution, what ends up happening is this scattered group of persecuted Christians in Jerusalem fled. They left that sweet place of Jerusalem and they tore off. Now our passage says they go to a few different places, right? Phoenicia, which is basically just calling it the shore. I mean, that's what it is, the shore of the Mediterranean. Uh, they also went to this place called Cyprus. That's where Barnabas is from, a place that's an island in the Mediterranean. But the center geographically, of what is going on in our passage, where God's plan is unfolding to save the world, is this town called Antioch. Antioch. And it makes sense. It totally makes sense. It makes sense, first of all, Antioch's the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. I mean, this thing's huge. Half a million people probably lived in Antioch. That's a lot of people. That's not all. It was a wealthy, prosperous city. So if you want to go somewhere and try to make a buck and survive, go to Antioch. That's not all. There's a fellow named Josephus, a guy who wrote a lot of things down, who was Jewish, not a Christian. Uh, after the time that Jesus was killed, he wrote some things down and said, Antioch is this place where a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people live. 45,000, 50,000 Jews live there. Here's why. They were there for hundreds of years. Yes, the Jewish people who lived in Antioch were there for hundreds of years. Does anyone here enjoy reading the Old Testament of the Bible? Please raise your hand. 
Yes. Well, for those of you who don't enjoy doing it, it's okay. But have you heard of this thing called the exile or the exiles? It's those moments in the Old Testament, probably five to 700 years before the life of Jesus Christ, where Israelites, because they weren't doing the things that God intended them to do in relationship with Himself, they were literally ripped out of their homes and forced to leave the promised land. They were forced to live in places like. Huh? Well, yeah, all those places. Antioch, yes, many of you said Antioch. Antioch is this place where many of them lived. So these Christians who are persecuted fled not to these strange places called Antioch. They fled to home. They went home. Wouldn't you go home if someone wanted to hurt you? Man, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm running back to Jersey. They ran home to Antioch. Now in Antioch, because of this Hundreds of years, generation upon generation of this intermingling between Jewish people who had been there for centuries and Greek people, which is anyone but Jewish people, living side by side, rubbing shoulders in their everyday lives. There's no iPhones or flat screen TVs to distract them. They were forced to see each other. And because of these kind of interactions over time, some Jewish folks, or many of them, learned the Greek language. Many of them learned how to operate in the marketplace in Greek culture. Many of them learned the philosophies of the Greek world, but they remained true to Yahweh, but they started to pick up some of this Greek cultural stuff. On the other side of things, the same thing happened. Greek folks were looking at these Jewish people, and they were going, wow, one God makes sense of everything Ancient, legit. These people are devoted to their faith. I want some of that. So many of these Greek-minded people took on one of two roles. Some of them became what are called God-fearers, which means they really appreciated and admired what the Jewish folks were doing. So they started to pray to Yahweh. They gave money to build synagogues. Uh, they may have adopted some of the laws. But they were trying to find ways to participate in the life of faith, to worship Yahweh. It's a really cool thing. There's lots of examples of this. But then some other folks became full-blown converts. They said, you know what, I'll get circumcised. I'll adopt the full law. So instead of just admiring it and appreciating it and joining in where they could, they went all in. So you have these two groups of people who are kind of in this in-between land of cultures and faith where people who are committed to Yahweh as Jewish folks and people who are pagan and Greek are starting to come closer together and starting to share things together, shared language, shared experience, shared life together. This is going on for hundreds of years. And then these persecuted Christians run home to Antioch and then they go to their Jewish friends in the synagogue and they say, hey, guess what? We found the Messiah. Yeah, remember all those times? Like that time in Ezekiel where he talks about how God says, I will be the good shepherd to my people. I will come down and restore the broken relationship. I will fix this broken world. I myself, God, will be the good shepherd. Did you know that Jesus proclaimed he's the good shepherd? And folks started to say yes to Jesus. They started to believe in him as the Messiah, the good shepherd to save the world. But that's not all. Those friends started to look at the friends in that in-between land. Don't forget the in-between land where Jews and Greeks are rubbing up against each other. God-fearers, proselytes are interacting. Things are happening. And all of a sudden, those people in the middle are starting to hear the good news of God's incredible love only revealed in Jesus Christ. And they are saying yes too. And then maybe even beyond that, the people who are on the outside, Greeks, who aren't necessarily fans or friends of the Jewish faith, they are hearing this message as well, and maybe some of them became Christians too. And probably not scores, probably not hundreds, but maybe even thousands of people became Christians in this early missionary movement. This is exciting! Come on, this is great news! The first full-fledged missionary movement in the Bible is taking place. 
But some of you who are good readers of the book of Acts, you're looking back at me right now and you're going, Ken, this is so old news. Oh my Lord. You remember that time where Peter's up on a rooftop dreaming about eating bacon, right? That unclean stuff. And he's told by God in a dream to go see this Italian guy named Cornelius, who's also a Roman soldier. So he goes and he sees Cornelius, and Cornelius becomes a Christian in the midst of that. Did you know that Cornelius was a God-fearer? Of course you knew, because you're looking at me saying, Ken, we know that story. Well, here's another one that you may already know. Remember Philip? Philip's this guy, they call him a deacon, we're not really sure what that means, but he's this leader in the early church, and he's a guy that's walking down a road in the middle of nowhere. When I say middle of nowhere, I'm not talking about Rockford in the woods on a mountain biking trail. I'm talking about like in the middle of a desert nowhere, and in the midst of that, he runs into an African guy. Yeah, the text says Ethiopian, that means south of Egypt. He's an African, and he's also a God-fearer. He's been readied to hear this message of the gospel because he's reading a scroll from the book of Isaiah saying, who is this fellow? And Philip tells him and he becomes a Christian. Those are one-off examples that were easier to make sense of. But in Antioch, this thing is going big, folks. It is full-fledged. And now you're wondering, what's the lesson? This is great to learn this biblical history, this story in the book of Acts chapter 11. But what's the lesson that God is trying to teach all of us today? Here's the lesson. God has a plan. God clearly has a plan. The thing that we need to be careful of is not to hijack God's plan with our own. I mean, we can see this right there in the text. Paul and Barnabas are not mentioned in that passage. They're nowhere to be found. This thing that's happening in Antioch is happening by a bunch of no-named, persecuted Christians. That's great. But the cool thing is, just imagine with me for a moment, what if the church in Jerusalem said, you know what, Uh, we got a plan to send some folks to Antioch. I mean, it makes sense. It's one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. There's probably about 40 to 50,000 Jewish folks already there. That could be a strategic base to send uh, Peter, no sword, James or John or someone else to go there and to start a missionary activity. And what they could do is they could go there and they could say, okay, y'all, get circumcised or uh, follow these laws or live into the relationship with God this way and that'll make the gospel more complete for you. They could have easily done this. We know this to be true because there is this problem happening in Acts chapter 15 where some Christians felt that Greeks needed to live into these kinds of rules or ways of being in relationship with God. I'm not knocking it, but this is what they might have done if it was their plan. But God's plan is so much better because for hundreds of years, God allowed plan his own people to be ripped out of Israel and forced to live as slaves and then citizens in towns like Antioch. Hundreds of years of this. God allowed these relationships in this in-between land between Jewish folks and Greek folks where some became converts or God-fearers or at least aware of the Jewish faith for hundreds of years. So that just such a time as this, a kairos moment, where these persecuted, no-name Christians flee Jerusalem and go to Antioch, and God's plan is unleashed in a brand new way. We have to be careful not to hijack God's plan with our own. Here we sit, 2017, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And many of us already know this to be true, that the fastest-growing religion in America is no religion at all. It's the fastest growing religion. It's especially growing fast among young people, high school students, college students. They are either walking away from the faith or they just don't know. In New Jersey, they don't know. Quran, Bible, I'm not too sure. However, here in Grand Rapids, uh, being here for almost two years now, there's many times at the microbrewery I meet people who are just done with the church. 
Uh, maybe their reasons are legitimate, there is too many rules, or maybe they just want to party and have a good time. I don't know. But for whatever reason, there they are, away from the Christian faith, away from community, not hearing God speak through the Scriptures. And we as Trinity Mission Church or Crossroads Bible Church, it doesn't matter, we're one church, we could look at this statistic, this rising population in our very own midst, and we could come up with a plan. We could take our elite foot soldiers people who know the scriptures, which is not a bad thing. People who could go into those places and look at those people who've walked away from the faith and say, guess what? If you would just stop having S-E-X with people you're not married to, or hey, if you would just read your Bible more, or hey, if you would just stop drinking more than four beers a day, or hey, any of these other rules, then and only then, you can hear the gospel and be changed by it. Friends, that is not God's plan. At least the way we read Scripture. Worse than that, that is not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has already done for us at the cross where he died. Yes, the gospel is the good news of his love for us that comes to us and forgives us of our sins, that rescues us. And when we hear this thing, we get on our faces and we repent saying, I don't want to sin anymore because your love is so good. That's the gospel. But we have a temptation in us as a group of people to hijack God's plan with our own. And when we do, we limit it. Okay? You're looking at me saying, well, maybe this isn't a community thing. Maybe this isn't an individual thing. Well, you know what? I have that problem too. Individually, I love to hijack God's plans. Love it. I hate the after effects, but I love hijacking. Because I know better, right? Uh, here's an example. When I first became a Christian as an adult, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I didn't know anything. It was hilarious. But one thing I thought I knew was that to be a good pastor, which I felt called to be, uh, was to be a good counselor. So I took these counseling classes in a graduate program. Uh, I enjoyed the classes. I learned things. It was kind of like rubbing my nails against a chalkboard, though. I was like, oh, this is really hard. Uh, they accepted me into the program, but the director of the program pulled me aside. This is never good. And said, hey, uh, Ken, um, we need male counselors. We really do. There's not many of them. But you shouldn't be a counselor. <laughs> Ken, you can't sit still for more than 10 minutes. You have to actually sit and focus. Uh, Ken, there's this thing called empathy. <sighs> Full disclosure here, folks. And of course I have empathy and I care and I cry. And that's a good reason why I have a partner in church planning, so that way we can be together in things that we're not good at. Um, but the whole point was I was trying to live into this plan to become a counselor. It was my plan. And if I would have put my head down and said, you know what, thanks for the advice, I've got this, I would be somewhere making myself miserable and the people that I would serve as a counselor miserable too because I'm just not made to do that. I would have missed out on being here with you today. I would have missed out on making great friends with people who've taught me so much about the Bible in one year, more than I probably learned in three years in seminary. I would have missed all these things if it would have lived into my plan. And I'm not the only one who struggles with this. I hear this many times with guys who feel called to be pastors. It always seems to be guys. And to be a good pastor, they're told or they believe, is to be a good preacher. So what they do is they put all this pressure on themselves to be a preacher and then they go to seminaries and all that sort of thing. And in seminary, I heard there's like 20 or 30 preachers almost annually who get caught plagiarizing other pastors' sermons. I mean, this is actually a thing that happens. And we don't want to look down on those people. We want to recognize that when we try to hijack God's plan, we miss out on the thing that he made us for. If the early church would have hijacked God's plan, they would have missed out, perhaps, on this awesome thing that God did in Antioch. And we together, as a group of people and individuals, we could miss out on something very exciting that's about to happen that's new and something completely out of our control, where God might use some of you who are like, I'm not sure about what it means to be a Christian. God might use you in that in-between land because you understand the struggle of alcohol and sex and all those things. And you can relate to people who are in those things and say, Jesus Christ can heal you. 
If we hijack God's plan, we will miss out. Now, that might sound like jumping over a 10-foot high fence. How do we do that? That's a great lesson. Thank you, God. But what about some lessons that are a little more palatable, things that we can kind of sink our teeth into? So we're going to return to our passage and try to find maybe one, two, or three things that we can take steps into to more faithfully participate in God's plan and not our own. So I'm going to go there now. You can stay seated. We're going to go to Acts 11, verse 22. Acts eleven twenty two. Here we go. <clears throat> News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, told you, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We'll stop there. Simple steps. The church in Jerusalem hears the word of what's going on in Antioch. Travels 300 miles south. What do they do about it? This hasn't happened before. So they send a good guy named Barnabas, who's bicultural. Remember, he knows the Jewish world and he knows the Greek world really well. So they send him up there to find out what's going on. The first thing that Barnabas does is he arrives and he watches. Our passage says, Barnabas saw. That's it. Barnabas didn't go to Antioch and say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm Barnabas. Uh, you may know me, you may not, but I'm from Jerusalem, and uh, I have the five steps to becoming a sustainable church plant here in Antioch that will for sure guarantee you 200 converts in three years. He doesn't do that. He goes there, and he watches. He's trying to learn what God is up to, and that makes complete sense if we think about this word saw or see in the Greek language. In our language, in English, we kind of lose these deeper meanings of words for whatever reason. But in the Greek, this word to see is not limited to me seeing you sit there, or you sit there, or you sit there. Physically, seeing is watching the divine. Yes, in this context, this word has the weight of watching God reveal himself and do new things with your very own eyes. And Barnabas is just watching, not just what is happening in front of him. Barnabas is watching the Holy Spirit at work in Antioch, which leads him to the second step that we should take when we see God at work in new ways, is Barnabas was glad. Barnabas celebrated. Kind of like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Golf clap, right? The word glad also in this original language has this other weight to it as well. This gladness, this rejoicing, whatever you want to translate it as, has this unique way that everything within us wants to move. Barnabas saw God at work and his body started to move. His heart started to beat. His mind is racing. He's excited about the things that God is doing. Friends, we can learn a whole lot from our Pentecostal friends today. Have any of you been to a Pentecostal worship service here or some other country? Oh my Lord! They see God do stuff and they just start dancing and screaming and shouting. Now I'm not saying we should always do that, but we should do some of that. Barnabas did. He celebrated. I can't dance. I won't even try. <laughs> but he was so excited by watching God at work. And that helped him step into the third thing. The third thing is Barnabas joined God. He joins God in two ways. The first, remember, he's a good guy that exhorts people. So Barnabas gets to work. He sees what God's doing. He celebrates, and then he finds ways to shepherd people. He comes alongside them. He comforts them. Oh, you got kicked out of your house because you believe in Jesus? Let me give you a hug. Now get out there and tell them about Jesus. Like Barnabas lived into this, and a great many people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of it. 
And he thrived in this because Barnabas was made by God to do this. He was gifted by the Holy Spirit. He had gifts for, for this. But that's not all. Barnabas came to a place where he realized what is going on in Antioch is beyond him. It's more than he can handle on his own or with this group of persecuted Christians. So what Barnabas does is he gets on a boat, most likely, sails down a river, goes over to this place called Tarsus, knocks on a door, goes into the basement, and says, hey Paul, are you ready? Barnabas remembered things. He remembered this guy Paul is the most passionate person in the world. Paul became a Christian and came out of the gate preaching the gospel and almost got himself killed. Paul is fearless. He is appropriately reckless. He is all in for Jesus Christ. He's that baseball player that never takes a playoff and always gets injured. He's that guy you want in this kind of unknown what's going to happen next experience. But he's also a guy that is gifted for preaching the good news in a way that both Jews and Greeks, which is what he's called to do, can understand. God's incredible love. Barnabas realizes his own limitations, but he also realizes something that a good friend has taught me. Yes, a fellow who planted a church in the Philadelphia era years ago has reminded me consistently because I have some of those impulsive tendencies in me as well. He tells me this African proverb over and over again. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Barnabas wanted to go far. And of course, we can see in our passage that those two fellows went far, right? They're teaching people about the gospel. The church is growing, growing, and growing while they're there for this full year. But here's the kicker. What those two fellows learned by seeing celebrating and joining God became the very strategy that helped them plant more churches. Uh, You could flip forward on your own to Acts chapter 13, I believe, and that is this place where Paul and Barnabas partner in church planning and start new churches based on the things that they learned in Antioch. If you've read Romans, there's this place, I think at least three times, where Paul says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. This is what they learned in Antioch. That in-between land is one of the best ways to start a church and to share the gospel. And these two guys learned that there in Antioch. Now we have all these letters of places from Corinth and Philippi, Thessalonica. Keep going if you'd like. But these were places where Paul learned things. He learned to go to big cities. Places where he could work as a tent maker to make some money. Places where he knew there was that in-between land between Jewish and Greek culture. Places where he knew how to speak rhetorically. Places where his heart burned to see Greeks come to faith in Jesus Christ. Places that he was meant to go because once the gospel took hold or at least got started in an urban area, it could filter its way out to the more rural places around it. Their strategy emerges because they saw, they celebrated, and they joined God. Not because they read 20 books on church planning. Concrete example of this that's more contemporary. It's always helpful to have something we can look at with our own eyes today. Uh, So in New Jersey, where I came from, there's this church called Outreach Red Bank. And it's a church that started about 14, 15 years ago as well. And it's a church that from the beginning was just a bunch of young adults who just finished college or were working in their careers, barely, and they had this heart watching high school kids and young adults do drugs, commit suicide, and self-harm. They were watching this happen right there on the Jersey Shore, and their hearts were breaking together. So they would try things. As they watched God, they would try to make friendships with these kids at skate parks or at the mall. And occasionally they got to celebrate these great things where they made a friend. Where these kids were like, yeah, I'm depressed because my parents don't give a rip. They give me a credit card to go buy whatever I want, but they don't really want to know me or deal with my problems. They just want to pay me off. 
Or the opposite, the parents were just not even around. But they started to build these relationships and they celebrated it together. They started to join God in the midst of it. And then they realized they were way in over their heads. So what they did was they called upon a fellow who was in a seminary not far away, who was getting a PhD in preaching, had a completely different career set in front of him. But the guy was also a skateboarder. Crazy enough, right? And they asked this guy, hey, you're from this area, you're a skateboarder, you love Jesus, can you help us? Because we're clueless. And so the guy moves into the area, drops out of his program, he goes all in, and then all of a sudden they're doing these events where they're having Bible studies, oh my Lord, in the basement of homes. And there's these high school kids literally walking into basements, smoking a cigarette, flicking it, going downstairs and hearing the gospel. Then those kids became Christians. Celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Their parents are coming around going, uh, you're young adults. You're hanging around my kids, uh, but my kids aren't cussing at me. They're not doing drugs. And strangely, they talk about this fellow named Jesus. The parents looked at those young adults and said, we want that too. Became a church. Because a group of people who didn't know what they were doing watched celebrated, realized their own limitations when they were joining with God, and something new occurred. And so much of what I understand about the church and the gospel came from this experience, something that was a hot mess from the very beginning. Okay, we're rolling along here. Some of you are looking at me saying, you said there could be three things God wants to teach us, and these other two things sound kind of hard, right? Like not hijacking God's plan. Well, I'm all about planning. Or uh, seeing, it's hard to do, we're so busy. Celebrating, I cannot dance as well. Uh, third, joining, I don't have the skills for that. So you're wondering, how is this even possible for me to learn how to participate in God's plan to save the what? The world. Are you with me still? Come on. We're almost there to the end, I promise. To save the world. What can we learn? What's a trick? Well, the trick is right there in our passage that I just read to you. It's in one single word that's mentioned. It's this word that Christians are called in Antioch for the very first time. The word is Christians. Uh, the word Christian is going to help us understand a whole lot of things. The word Christian is most likely a Latin word, or at least Latin in origin, which tells us in this room that this name of being called a Christian came from people who weren't Christians, probably Roman authorities. Christians were calling themselves brother and sister and the people of the way, but now they're called this thing from outsiders. Because outsiders recognized a couple of things. First, they recognized who the Christians were not. Okay, yes, they look like they've got this Jewish thing going on. They're reading the Old Testament in the Greek language, they're talking about Yahweh. They're celebrating and worshiping in similar ways. But they talk about Jesus different. They're different. They're people of Christ. That's not all. These Roman authorities looked at those Christians and they noticed what they do. Yes, what they do. From the very beginning of the Christian faith, Jesus looks at every single person. He says, when I was hungry... You did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was lonely and in prison and sick, you didn't come to comfort me or heal me. If you don't do that to the least of things, poor people, you don't do those things to me, Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, Christians were known for how they served the poor and those who were suffering. As I learned recently on a trip overseas in the land of the Bible, Christians would see babies on the ground. Yes, people didn't want their baby, so Christians would come along, scoop those babies up, and raise them as their own. Christians would find widows, people who've lost spouses, and they'd wrap their arms around them and say, I love you, I'm with you, be a part of our community because of who Jesus Christ is. And we're going to feed you with the money that we have from people like Barnabas selling their property. Christians were known for what they did from the very beginning, serving poor people. James says it. If you want to live the Christian faith, if you want to live this thing out, serve widows and orphans, the poor and those who are suffering. Lastly, 
Christians were known for who they belonged to. From the very beginning of this whole Christian enterprise, Christians were known for who they belonged to. Last week, Rod touched on this phrase that Paul uses frequently, Jesus is Lord. The way that we publicly say with our mouth that he is our Savior and our King, that we now live for him. But there's another phrase that Paul uses very frequently, 160 times in the New Testament. I counted them myself. 160 times. Paul says, in Christo, in Christo, translated in Christ, in Christ, in him, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. He uses this phrase over and over again, friends, because Paul is trying to tell us that the only way to live a part of God's plan is to be in Jesus Christ. Yes, the only way for us to be a part of a community of people that are called the body of Christ is to be in Christ. The only way for us to see, to celebrate, to join God is to already be in Christ. The only way for us to know that there's good news that this broken world needs to know about is to be in Jesus Christ because of this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world. Reconciling means exchange. In Jesus Christ, God reconciles us. He takes all of our sins and replaces them with forgiveness. At the cross where Jesus died, he takes all of us who feel lost, unworthy, lonely, suffering, foolish, guilty. He takes all of us and he finds us in the cross where he died. It's at the cross where Jesus died that he saves us of our sins and gives our lives meaning and purpose. It's only because we are now found in Christ. That is the secret sauce of how to hear God speak through the scriptures. It is the only way to participate in his plan to save the world is to be in Christ. Can I get an amen? Yes. There's a fellow by the name of Karl Barth who's taught me many things. Uh, He's written probably 15,000 pages of what we call theology. I just call it his interpretation of Paul. He read Paul quite a bit. And he has this thing called his final testimonies, the very last things that he wrote before he died. And one of the last things he wrote is this. And my own concern in my long life has been increasingly to emphasize this name, Jesus' name, and to say, in Him. There is no salvation but in this name. In Him is grace. In Him is the spur to work. In Him is the ability to fight warfare. In Him we have fellowship. In Him is all that I have attempted in my life in weakness and folly. It is there in him. Paul and Barnabas knew what it meant to be in Jesus Christ. Barnabas, wealthy guy, guy that takes his wealth and he sells it all to give to the poor and those who are suffering through the church. He knew that his identity could never be found in his money or the possessions that he had. No way. It was only in Christ. And in the same way, Paul, this brilliant theologian, someone who I try to learn from every day, this guy knew that all those things are garbage in compared to being found in him 160 times. Paul defines what it means to be in him better than anywhere else than Philippians 3, verse 8. Hear this as I read it to you. What is more, I, Paul, consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider those things garbage that I may gain Christ, hear this, friend, and be found in Him. God wants to teach us through the Scriptures that the only thing that matters is to be found in Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, to end our time, we'll just look at the last part of our passage and then you'll get to watch a video. So let me just read that passage to you now. It's 
Acts 11, 27 through 30. Here we go. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So famines broke out often in the ancient world. This is one of those events. A prophet speaks in the large gathering and says, hey, a famine's coming. And the famine probably looked like this. Uh, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world at this time. It's where the grains and everything came from for food to eat. And on occasion, the Nile River would flood. And that means water would spill out of the Nile and go into crops and completely destroy them, render them useless. And the problem when this happened wasn't so much that no one had food to eat. It was because poor people didn't have food to eat. In the ancient world, if you were poor or a slave or whatever, marginalized, you would be the first to suffer when a famine hit. Uh, Number one, you probably didn't have a barn to throw food in for a rainy day. Uh, You probably didn't have that savings account you could reach into to buy the food that you needed when the prices rose. So in these famines, poor people suffered worldwide. I mentioned to you already there's this church on the Jersey Shore and how I was once a living member of this church. The people who are a part of that community, I consider them my family. And in 2012, while I was living there with my family, this thing called Hurricane Sandy hit. And Sandy is this event where not the Nile River, but the Atlantic Ocean rose and waters went inland and destroyed so much. And what I learned in three weeks of going around and trying to help people make sense of all this was that those who were poor suffered the most. So what happened is the people at Outreach Red Bank Church started to meet at the pastor's driveway. Uh, The first day, it was just a couple of us and a couple pickup trucks. And we would go to places like Keensburg and other places where poorer people lived, where help wasn't getting. And we would basically just throw everything away that was ruined by the water. And there's many other stories that I could share with you now, but tears will well up in my eyes, so I will not. But each day in this driveway, more and more trucks and people and generators and chainsaws and other equipment kept showing up, not just from New Jersey, but places like New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and even Michigan. People heard that this ragtag church that had no money, had a bunch of young people who were trying to figure out what it meant to be a church, were serving those who were hit the hardest by this famine. 